how you live is determined by what is in your heart. How you live and how you respond to the, the trials, the pressures in this world, uh, times of mistreatment, all of these things are going to be determined by what is in your heart. In 1 Peter, we have been seeing that Peter is writing to uh, Christians that are living as exiles in this world, in a world that they don't, they don't fit into very well because uh, we, have, we have been changed uh, by God. We have different loves. We have different perspective and all these things. And in many ways, we're, we're outsiders in this world and sometimes facing mistreatment, suffering, persecution to various degrees. And we know that we go through that now as well. And we are called to be prepared for this. In the past few weeks, we've been seeing that we are called to live in different authority structures under the state and uh, in the, the workplace and in the home. And sometimes that's not easy because the people that are, that are over us at times are not living and using their authority in the, the best way possible. But all of this changes for us in the way that we live and the way that we respond to these things that are not ideal depending on what is in our hearts. And having the living hope of Christ in a born-again heart makes a change, makes a difference that people will notice. So let's start reading First Peter 3. We're going to start with verse 8, and we'll do 8 through 12 to begin with. And let's uh, read the passage first. Verse 8. Finally, all of you, having unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart and a humble mind, do not repay evil for evil, reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless, for to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and to see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's look at this for the first half of uh, this message, and I'm going to summarize this section with uh, some phrases from verses um, 10, 11 through 12, there where Peter is quoting from Psalm 34, do good and seek peace. Those are phrases that were in that passage. And so much of this is talking about the way that we need to think, the way that we need to act, and we need to, to do good, seek peace, respond differently than the way that the world around us would respond when those that are against us. Let's work through this. In verse 8, a few things I want to point out. First of all, I think it's interesting. You look at verse 8, and it starts, it says, finally. Makes it seem like, you know, Peter's bringing this in for a landing. Uh, but if you look here, Peter's still basically got half the message to go, and he says, finally. And that's how you know that Peter was a Baptist pastor. Okay? He was a Baptist preacher. You can tell. But uh, we look at this, and he says, finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. So he's, he's talking to believers. He's telling us uh, these, these, he lists five qualities that we are supposed to have and, and gives these off. And there's something interesting that we can notice here. A few weeks ago, uh, when we talked about our view of 
uh, how we're supposed to respond under uh, government and to, to honor our leaders, we noticed there was a part where it had a certain structure to it. And I've had a few people say that they thought this was really interesting. And uh, I pointed out that this is what they refer to as chiastic structure. And it's a different way of thinking than we tend to think and organize our thoughts. Uh, but in the Hebrew mindset, and although Peter was writing this in Greek, he was, he was a Hebrew, so he had this mindset, they would oftentimes list things in a way that they would start at one point, and then it was kind of this, this horseshoe pattern, and it would circle around back to the beginning. And we actually see this with these five items, five at this time, uh, that are listed here in verse 8. And it might not be apparent to us right away, but if, when we look at this, I think we'll notice that this is something intentional. First, he lists unity of mind, and then he lists sympathy, and then brotherly love. Now, I said in this way of thinking, it, it forms kind of a horseshoe pattern, so it comes back around. So then he talks about a tender heart. Other translations may say compassion. And then finally, a humble mind. And if you look at this, it is interesting that there are connections between the first and the last, a unity of mind or, and a humble mind. And I think we can also notice that there is some similarity between sympathy and, and compassion. So it has this, this format. So let's think about this a little, little bit with these things in mind, that God is calling, and this is specifically here to believers, and how we ought to treat our brothers and sisters in Christ. So he's saying that we need unity of mind and a, and a humble mind. In Greek, each of these phrases are just one word, but they each end uh, with the, the ending of the, the compound word that basically means mind. So our mindset, the first and last have to do with our, our mindset, that we need to have a mindset where we're united with each other. We're not divided. We're not going in all these different directions. And it makes it a lot easier to have this uh, unity of mind when we also have humility, when we're not seeking to be the first one. These things go hand in hand. If you're, if you're trying to be the first one, you're trying to set yourself up as, as more important than other people and seeking the first place in all things, uh, that also makes it really hard to have the unity of mind that we are supposed to have as brothers and sisters in Christ. Humility doesn't mean having necessarily low self-esteem, but it means having the willingness to, to take the lower place. And that's something that Jesus demonstrated and that he did for us. And when we're willing to take the lower place and not claim that we have to be first and preeminent in things, then it, we're able to have this unity. So the first and the last in this list have to do with the mindset that we as Christians should have. And then the, the second and the fourth have to do with, with how we feel, with our, the emotional life that we have for each other. So there's the thinking we have to have uh, that is changed by our, the hope that is within us. There's also the, uh, just how we feel. It talks about sympathy, and it talks about having a, a tender heart. Sympathy, this can also be uh, translated as, as harmony. We're able to uh, care deeply about each other. We're supposed to have uh, the, the ability in, in acting this where we we care deeply about the needs and the joys and the, and the sorrows and the different things that people are going through. And we're able to do this because hopefully God has changed our hearts so we have a, a tender heart. As I said, it's translated compassion. Literally, the, the phrase there for a tender heart in 
Greek is literally, if, if, you, if I gave you a thousand guesses, you wouldn't guess what it is, um, unless you've heard this before. It is literally a good spleen. It literally is. It's a good spleen or good intestines. But think about this. We, we tend to think of, you know, we feel with our heart. Uh, but in the ancient world, they kind of thought that you, you feel with more of your, your guts, your spleen. And sometimes we still say that. You know, I had a, a sinking feeling in my, in my, my guts or uh, something along those lines. And basically, the, the idea here is we need to have, as it's translated, compassion. We need to have the right type of affection, of care. So having a tender, uh, tender feelings or a tender, we would say, heart is different than, than having a hard heart towards other people. And so often we don't have uh, compassion or sympathy towards our brothers and sisters in Christ because our hearts are hard or we're concerned just about ourselves and we're not concerned about other people. And all of this kind of accumulates in this idea of brotherly love, this care for one another that we're supposed to have, this, this love and affection that we should have. And that's why I think this verse is specifically talking about uh, brothers and sisters in Christ, having this brotherly love. In Greek, it's uh, Philadelphos, which sounds like Philadelphia. Actually, the word for the city Philadelphia it comes from that Greek word, and that's why Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. It literally is uh, uh, phileo and adelphos, uh, love and, and brother. So we think about this as we move into the rest of this passage. You know, believers face so many issues from the, from the outside world, uh, from those that we are, we're living as, as aliens, as, uh, as foreigners, as sojourners in this world, let's at least be a, a, a safe place for each other. Let's at least be a, a sanctuary and be able to give support for each other as we live in this world that oftentimes uh, is hostile to us and causes us trouble. We need to be there for each other as brothers and sisters in Christ. So back to the passage, it says in verse 9, Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. So the other verse was primarily about the Christian community. This verse is how we respond to people on the outside and people that will do evil to us, that would mistreat us. Although obviously this also applies within the church as well. When there are times that are brothers and sisters in Christ who shouldn't mistreat us, sometimes that happens. And how do we repay them? How do we respond to them? And this is saying we're, because we have this different hope in our heart, because we have the living hope in our born-again heart, we ought to, we need to, we must respond in a way that's different from the world. The world says somebody did something against you, you get even to them. You, you fight back in the same way. And this is saying that instead, that we don't repay evil for evil. We don't do the same thing. On the contrary, we, we bless those that persecute us. This is hard. But this is what God is, is calling us to do. Rem- with the mindset of how much we have been blessed by God, by Christ, when we did not deserve it. That we did not deserve for the Son of God to come for us. And to die on the cross for us. We did not deserve God to give us the salvation that he's given us. 
even if it was just a matter of not having to go to hell, that is this amazing thing that, that we did not deserve because as sinners, we deserve condemnation. But even more, all the blessings that he's given us, the inheritance that he's given us, the hope that we have, adoption by the, the Lord God, these amazing things. We didn't deserve it, but God has blessed us in this way. Therefore, as we become like Christ, we want to do the same to others. We can bless those that harass us, that persecute us, that, are, that, are, that treat us poorly. There's a story about a, a Christian soldier. I read about, uh, I believe a true story, that uh, this Christian soldier, um, when he was living in the barracks, uh, his unit uh, was, was against him. They didn't like that he was a, a Christian. They, they made fun of him. They harassed him. And uh, one night he's... he's uh, laying there in his, in his cot. Uh, somebody threw a pair of muddy combat boots across the, the barracks and flying at his head. And the next morning, sun comes, uh, time to get up. Uh, this soldier that threw the muddy boots at this, this Christian soldier, uh, he found his boots at the foot of his bed, cleaned and polished and ready for inspection. This Christian soldier responded in a different way than the world would respond. And actually through this, eventually several of the soldiers in the camp became Christians as a result of the way that this Christian responded even when he was being harassed. So we respond in a different way. At verses 10 through 12, this is uh, basically from uh, Psalm 34. We see here, whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil. We don't want to respond with our lips, with our mouth in this evil way, and his lips from speaking deceit. Verse 11, let him turn away from evil and do good. This is an active thing. We're not just turning away from evil and going and hiding somewhere, but we're doing good. We're actively trying to do good for other people. Let him seek peace and and pursue it. Let us try to be agents of peace, agents of uh, reconciliation, ones that are willing to reach out and take the initiative to do that. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer, but the, Lord, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So we're being called to do good and to seek peace. This is hard to do, and yeah, we wouldn't do this unless we had a change of heart unless we had the hope of Christ that was within our, the born-again hearts that the Lord has given us. Let's read the second part of this message from uh, verses 13 through 17 and summarize it for you this way. Be prepared, then, to explain why you live differently. So we're going to live differently because we have this hope in our heart It's going to make a difference. People are going to notice it. And it needs to be explained. God wants us to be ready to uh, use this when it comes up. Verse 13. Now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord is holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect, having a good conscience, 
so that when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. So we don't want to do evil. We don't want to respond with evil. We want to respond with good. But when that happens, people are going to notice, because this is out of the ordinary for how people uh, tend to respond in this world. So we look at this, verse 13 and 14. Who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? And to answer this question, a lot of people might say, well, there's a lot of people that are willing to harm you. And in this time, I mean, uh, Nero uh, is going to start persecuting Christians. I mean, he's eventually going to have, have Peter killed. And so, yeah, there are people that are willing to harm you and, and harass you uh, for, for doing good. So in this context, Peter doesn't mean that no one is ever going to harm you for doing good. Uh, that does happen. In a perfect world, yeah, that wouldn't happen. In a perfect world, when you do good, people would just respond in the right way. And thankfully, oftentimes that is what happens, that we can change the, the tone, we can change the temperature in the room by responding with goodness rather than responding with evil. When you respond just evil against evil, things just crescendo and, and heat up. But oftentimes, when we respond with good, it can, it can lower the temperature. It can change people's mindset. Now, that doesn't always happen. And Peter knows this, and this is why verse 14 uh, confirms that sometimes this, this doesn't happen. Verse 14, but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be, nor be troubled. So we see that in a perfect world, nobody would react against goodness with evil, but we do not live in a perfect world. We live in a fallen, a sinful world, and sometimes that happens. And when that happens, we need to make sure that uh, we are responding in, in the right way. And also, when we look at this and we realize that there's people that are against us, a lot of people are going to fear those people and let themselves be controlled by those people. And therefore, respond or, or give up in the Christian life or, or, or hide or modify what they believe. But Peter says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. Do not let your hearts be controlled by the fear of people. And that phrase is literally, do not fear the fear of them. The fear that we could have because of other people. And you know, when we stop fearing people, we stop fearing what they think, what they, what they can do to us, the negative ways they can impact us, it, it frees us up so that we can love them, we can seek peace, we can do good, we can respond differently even when they're not uh, responding that way. You know, and if we saw persecution, if we saw being harassed as an opportunity for faithfulness and an opportunity for, for God to reward us, I mean, that really changes everything. Then instead of being just so consumed about, oh no, people are harassing us in the world, we would, feel, we would feel blessed, not defeated. Because we know that God is giving us an opportunity to respond well and for us to please him and for him to reward us through this. If we viewed it that way, we would not fear what people and what they can do. We wouldn't, we wouldn't cave to that pressure. Some of this language seems to be similar to Isaiah chapter 8, 12 through 13. It says, quote, 
Do not call conspiracy all that this people calls conspiracy, and do not fear what they fear, nor be in dread. But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. Then it goes on in verse 15. It's a really key verse here. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. In this passage here in verse 15, it can also be translated, set apart in your hearts Christ as holy. That Christ is the one that we are, we are called to set apart in our hearts. When we talk about this, and when we talk about in, in our hearts, again, this isn't talking about the uh, organ that beats blood. Uh, it's also not even talking about the, our emotional center, but, but the core of our being. The core of our being we're supposed to set apart uh, Christ as holy or set apart Christ as Lord. When we talk about this, we have to understand it the right way. You know, when, when we talk about, you know, whether it means, depending how you translate it, making Christ, uh, setting him apart as, as holy or setting him apart as Lord, understand, we don't make Jesus Christ holy. He already is holy. And we also don't make him Lord. He, he already is Lord. But it's a matter of recognizing and, and honoring him as Lord and realizing this in our life and in our hearts. I think about it in this way, kind of like within our hearts, there's all these different things that are competing for what is the master of your heart. What is it that you fear? What is it that, what is that controls you? What is it that motivates you? And it's like if you imagine this field with all these possible things, uh, th- what your neighbor thinks, what your parents think, what your kids think, what uh, people at work think, uh, what's going to happen if you do this? Are you going to lose your job? Are you going to lose your promotion? Are, uh, all these different things that we could fear and that could control our heart. I think it's saying to set apart Christ as Lord, to be holy means to be set apart. And I guess in my mind, I think about like this, like in the heart, all the different things that, that could be Lord, that I want to take the, the fence of that and I want to wrap it just around Christ. That the only thing in our hearts that should qualify as Lord and Master for us is Jesus Christ. And so often we are, we're living in fear, we're doing the wrong things because we've let other things be Lord and master of our heart and our lives. We need to partition off who gets to be Lord. And the only one that qualifies for that is, is Jesus Christ, the Lord. So all this starts with us setting apart Christ, making sure that, that he is the one sectioned off in our hearts. And when we do that, we can live out of hope instead of, instead of living out of fear. So you need to ask you, think about this. Spend some time, not just today, but as you go through this week, what is controlling your heart? What is Lord in your heart? What is master in your heart? And it's one thing to say uh, that Jesus Christ alone is the master and Lord of your heart, but as you go through life and you, and you think through, you realize uh, the decisions that you're making, what is functionally controlling your heart? And if you find things that are taking that place where only Christ should be, you, you kick those things out of that section. That Christ alone is the, the Lord of your heart. This passage goes on and says, always being prepared to make a defense 
to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. And this is a phrase that, uh, for those that do apologetics, they refer to this quite a bit. Apologetics is, uh, means defending the faith. And they especially look to this because the word here for translated defense in Greek is apologia, from which we get the word apologetics, which is uh, the, the, the art of defending the Christian faith, defending Christian truth, making a defense of this, explaining why it is true, explaining why the, all the alternate views uh, don't make sense. We think of this apologetics, or don't think of apologizing uh, for being a Christian or for the truth in the sense of, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I was wrong to, to believe these things. This is um, apologetics in the sense of defending or making a defense. Uh, it's kind of like a courtroom terminology. You have a, you have a defense when there's the trial that's going on. So uh, Plato wrote a book called The Defense. Uh, Justin Martyr uh, wrote a defense of Christianity, uh, why it was true and why the accusations against Christians uh, were, were wrong and explaining this to the watching world. So here in context, I mean, we can talk about apologetics and all these you know, philosophical reasons why you believe in God, but I think in context here, specifically, it's talking about having an opportunity and, and seizing the opportunity when it comes up, especially, to explain why we live differently, that why we react differently because of the hope that is in us and telling people about this hope, explaining the gospel of Jesus Christ to them when we have opportunity because they see the difference in the way that we live, telling them why we believe this is true. When we think about this, when it says, to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you, uh, this implies that there are going to be people that are going to ask you this question, that are going to notice the difference that you have in your heart and that, that bubbles out into your life because there is something different in your heart if it really is in there. So the question that you need to ask is, as you look into your life and you look at how you interact with the people around you, does the hope of Christ in your heart, does it make you live a life that is noticeably different to the people that are watching you, to those that are around you? Or do you live exactly the same as everyone else? If that's the case, it could mean that best case scenario, something is, is seriously wrong with your Christian life, and that for some reason you are not living out of the hope that is within you, and, and that is wrong, and you need to adjust that and change that. Maybe you have other things that have creeped into that, that lordship space of Christ in your heart, and so you're responding just the same way that the world does. You know, worst case scenario, most seriously, it could mean that you don't have the hope of Christ in your heart, that maybe you don't have a born-again heart yet, and what you need to do is you need to trust Jesus Christ, the Lord, as your Savior for, for the first time or for real. Because having a born and get heart is going to make this change. So people will ask you. They're, they're going to notice. They're going to notice the, the hope that is within you. This is the fifth time in First Peter that Peter has mentioned hope in this letter. First Peter 1.3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, according to his great mercy, has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. First Peter 1 Peter 1.13, 
you've been here for the series, you might remember some of these. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Chapter 121. You who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. And then chapter 3, verse 5. For this is how the holy women who hoped in God used to adorn themselves by submitting to their own husbands. And now in 3.15. So we have this hope. We have this certain hope. And it is a hope that, that triumphs over the circumstances in life. And it's all because of being born again and saved by Jesus Christ. And knowing that our life is different now, our future is different now, because of the certainty of uh, the, the salvation that God has prepared for us that we're into now and there's more yet to come. And this also means that we need to be prepared to explain what you believe and why you believe it. That's what this verse is telling us to do. Be prepared. Spend time thinking about this ahead of time. The different ways that in, uh, in life, someone, this might come up. That someone might ask you, why did you respond differently? Why do you live the way that you live? Why do you choose the things that you choose and love the things that you love? And these are opportunities when people see this based on this, this new life that you are living that God wants you to use these opportunities to, to testify for him, to tell people about the source of this hope that you have. Tell them about the salvation that you have through Christ, that although you are a sinner, that Christ came and he died for you and took your place. And the certainty that you have, the way that it changes your whole life. So basically, after people see what comes out of your life, then explain it to them with what comes out of your mouth. So we're not just badgering people with, with words without backing it up and showing them a life that is different. And we're not just living a life in a certain way and never talking about it. But God wants us to live our life in a way that's changed by Christ and then to use that also to tell people about the good news of Jesus Christ and to give them this hope that they have. We reply with the gospel. What is, what is your hope? I think we also want to explain also the reasons why we're persuaded, why we believe what we believe. You know, what's behind this? What grounds it? We want to be prepared to reply well to, to hostile questions about Christianity a lot of people in the world today are going to say, you Christians, you believe these crazy things and uh, they don't understand or they've been told the wrong things and we need to explain why God's truth really is good, beautiful, and true. Why it really works the best and it's the best for people. But as far as thinking about kind of why we believe in God, sometimes people want you to say, well, give me you know, your, your quick reason why you believe in God and, and it's kind of an unfair thing to do. I mean, if you had to ask you know, somebody real quickly, you know, why do you believe um, you know, in, in gravity, or why do you believe in, the, you know, the, 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 the earth is round, or the, the sun is in the sky, or just that, uh, just so many different things. It'd be hard to give a, just a quick answer to some of these. I spent some time thinking about once, if I had to really boil down kind of why I believe in God, why I believe in Christianity, why I believe these things are true. And there's so many things, and I have, you know, shelves full of books in my office talking about apologetics and all these complicated arguments. But I realized I could boil it down to this. I believe the God of the Bible is the best explanation for the testimony we receive, the world we observe, 
and the deeply planted beliefs I know to be true. And to do justice to this, it take a whole series to talk about this. But thinking about it, like, why do I ultimately believe? And really, it's not ultimately because of uh, these complex philosophical arguments. I think first and foremost, it's because God has communicated his truth to me through the scriptures, through the word of God that the, the Holy Spirit had written down. And because this is the word of God and it's inspired, when we read this, there's, there's something supernatural where it attests to us that this is God speaking to us, that this is, this is the truth of God to our hearts. And we realize this, it, it comes with this authority from the one who wrote it. And probably for most of us, this is probably the main reason why, why we believe we've been communicated God's truth to us through, through Scripture. And there are other reasons you can look at that, that back this up. When we think about Scripture, there's a lot of reasons why it, it, to believe it's a reliable historical document. If it carries marks of authenticity, that it's written by people that were eyewitnesses, they saw these things, they're, they're testifying for things that are true because they were willing to lay down their lives for these truths, to communicate these things. So there's the testimony we receive. And, and Scripture didn't just float down from heaven last week. This has been uh, things that, that Christians have believed for, for 2,000 years. And these, these truths about Christ, going all the way back from people that, that saw these things with their own eyes and were changed. And Christians came out of, they had to be caused by, by some reason. And it makes sense that it was caused because they experience Christ as risen from the dead. I believe also because of just the world that we observe, that we have this, this amazing world that is around us and how the scope of it and not just this world, but everything in space and the galaxies and all of this. And this requires a, a cause. It requires a sufficient cause to, to make this world, to bring it into existence. It hasn't just existed here forever, and there, there has to be something that can explain why the world exists. And not only that, there's so much design that we find in this world that it's intricately designed for uh, just to even to have life be possible. The odds for that happening just randomly are, are minuscule. You know, the information in our, our DNA, all these different things, points to there being a designer. When you see design, it points to there being a designer. We see the fingerprints of God all throughout this world. And then also, and in some ways, this is actually first, the deeply planted beliefs that, that I know to be true. And I would say, actually, we all know these things to be true, whether we admit it or not. And Christianity explains these things, that life has meaning, that there really is meaning in this world, it's not just an accident. Can you really believe that this world is just an accident? That there's no purpose? That we're here? That somehow we exist, we're conscious, and all these different things, uh, but we're just a bunch of atoms banging together that were produced uh, for no reason at all? If there was no God, it would mean that the love that you experience for, for your family, for your spouse, for your kids, that's just chemicals. There's nothing real about that. We have these deeply planted beliefs. We know that there is supposed to be justice in this world. We know there is real right and there is real wrong. These are not just social constructs that society has made up. These are, these are real things. And that's explained if the God of the Bible is real. And those are not explained 
if we are just some, some cosmic accident. And ultimately, I believe we have this deeply implanted belief that, that God has put in our hearts, just a sense that, that he is there, that, that he is real. We also have a sense in us that we are guilty before God. I do. That I'm guilty before this, this God who made us that I don't measure up to, that I have fallen short of because I willingly break his laws, I rebel against him. And that's, again, where the gospel is the answer to that. Where instead of running away from God because of this guilt that I experience in the way that so many people do, we realize that he came and he sought us out. That he came for the lost sheep. That he died for those that are unworthy. And that trusting him with new life in Christ. Apart from that, everything is meaningless. Everything is hopeless. Hope and I had a date night this past week. And while we're waiting for uh, uh, our table at On the Border, went over to the Barnes & Noble bookstore and looking around, and I saw the, the big collected works of Edgar Allan Poe. I don't know if you've kind of read some of those, if you've read, like, The Raven. But it's a great poem, and I thought, well, I haven't read The Raven in a while. So I sat there, and I, I read through The Raven. Uh, so, you know, once upon a midnight dreary, as I pondered weak and weary, it goes on. I won't read you the whole thing. But in this poem, uh, the, the narrator is talking about the loss of these experiences, his beloved Lenore that has, has died. And he's trying to uh, clear his mind of this, trying to seek solace through this. And he hears this tapping, and there's this raven that is, has come in and landed on the statue above, uh, above his door. And he st- kind of starts into this conversation with this raven. And if you've read the poem, you, you know that the raven keeps saying, Nevermore, nevermore. And he, it, 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 the poem builds as he keeps asking, you know, it, what is the reason for this? Is there uh, this Lenore that this loss is experienced? Will he ever see this person again? Is there comfort? Is there healing? Yes, is there balm in Gilead? Is there the hope that he will uh, see her again in, uh, in, in heaven? And each time this raven keeps saying, nevermore, nevermore, and it infuriates him, and it, it, the poem just you know, builds and at the last stanza, it says, And the raven never flitting, still is sitting, still is sitting, on the pallid bust, uh, pallid bust of palace just above my chamber door. And his eyes have all the seeming of a demon that is dreaming. And the lamplight o'er him streaming throws his shadow on the floor. And my soul from out that shadow that lies floating on the floor shall be lifted nevermore. And I read this, and just my heart is, I'm just in the bookstore, it was just dropping, thinking about if God didn't exist, this is all that life would be. Absolute crushing hopelessness, if we're willing to admit it. But if God exists, and if God is the God of the Bible, that loved you so much that he gave his only son, that whosoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. And if you have received that living hope through Jesus Christ, then you have a living hope that never goes away, that never changes. It changes you, and we need to be willing to talk about that with others. When we do that, as this passage says, we need to explain this with conviction, but also with gentleness and respect. 
there's a lot of Christian flamethrowers out there just getting into combat, getting into arguments, and take this into account. We're being told to, to defend the faith, to explain it, but in a certain way, it says we do this with, with gentleness, with respect, even for people that may, we think they don't deserve this respect, having a good conscience. So we do this in a manner that keeps our conscience clean. We're not <laughs> fighting the way that we fight. We're keeping our nose clean. We're taking the high road. That those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than for doing evil. You know, if people are against you, if they don't like you, is it really because you're a, a Christian or is it because you're being terrible to other people, that you're being a jerk, that you're being selfish? And sometimes there are people who say, well, I'm being harassed by others, but maybe it's the way that we're acting. May that not be. May we respond with gentleness and respect and keeping our nose clean. And verse 17, for it is better to suffer for doing good if that should be God's will than doing evil. And this means that sometimes it will be God's will. Sometimes it is part of God's sovereign will that we have these things happen to us. And when that happens, it means that if it's God's will, this is part of his plan that this happens. And that he is, wants to use this, he wants to bring good out of this, and we can trust him that it will be worth it. Let me ask you again to think about this. How you live is determined by what is in your heart. Are we fearing all these things that the world fears? Or have you trusted Christ the Lord as your Savior? Have you set him apart in your heart as the one Lord and Master of your heart? And if that's true, let's live lives that show that change. Let's pray. Lord God, we give you praise and thanks. We thank you for the living hope of Jesus Christ that we have in our hearts, that changes us, that we have different hearts because we've been born again through your work in our hearts, Lord God. Lord, again, I pray for anyone here that is or listens to this that has not trusted Christ as their Savior. And I pray that they would turn to him and that they would trust so they could know and have this living hope and have this change from the inside out. And for those of us that have believed, let this change how we react. Let us treat our brothers and sisters in Christ well. And Lord, let us treat the, the rest of the world well, that even if they are hostile to us, we will do good and seek to bless them, Lord. And that we will also bless them by explaining to them the reason for the hope that we have with the hope and the prayer that they would receive this hope as well. We give you praise. In Jesus Christ's name we pray these things. Amen.